Welcome to the Nature Reliance Podcast, where we explore the history and practical experience of the great outdoors and discover new ways to connect with nature. I'm Craig Cottle, your guide through the fascinating world of natural living and survival skills through experiential education and interviews. Today's episode is brought to you by the Nature Reliance School Online Membership, an immersive online learning experience designed for outdoor enthusiasts just like you. Are you passionate about the outdoors? Do you crave more knowledge about disaster readiness, wilderness survival, bushcraft, tracking, and nature awareness? If so, the Nature Reliance School online membership is your gateway to a community of like-minded individuals, all dedicated to learning and sharing essential outdoor skills. With the Nature Reliance School online membership, you get exclusive access to a wealth of resources, including expert-led tutorials, interactive webinars, and a library of engaging courses, downloadable books, and documents. Whether you're a beginner or an experienced outdoorsman, there's always something new to learn. So don't wait. Click on the link below to join the Nature Reliance School online membership today. Embrace the wilderness, enhance your skills, and become part of a community that values nature as much as you do. Now, let's dive into today's episode. My name is Tracy Trimble, and welcome in. It is that time of the year when you hear people talking about the big one, the big one that they got, or the big one that got away. Oh yeah, we are discussing deer hunting today. Craig joins in today as we discuss topics about deer hunting, such as preserving the culture, legal issues, tools needed, the critical shot placement, and what goes on after you've taken the shot. Near the end of the episode, we also discuss processing options and recipe ideas. We are always thankful for you listening in, so sit back and let's get started. Hey everybody, welcome in to the Nature Reliance Media Podcast. I'm Craig Cottle. Tracy Trimble's on the other side over there. We're going to be talking and chatting back and forth today on a very important topic and timely, what we believe, deer hunting. I was at deer camp this weekend and there was a guy that's a good friend of ours that was in camp and he's from Ohio, so he gets an out-state license and he was talking about I think it's Monday after deer season, or maybe that's the opening day of deer season in Ohio. School canceled, baby. Really? For the whole, yeah, they take it so serious <laughs> up there, man. Let's just cancel school because we know nobody's coming. Might as well around here as well. I wish they would. Not to give away what I'm going to be talking about in the podcast, but I think it's a pretty important part of our culture, really, to uh, continue the traditions of hunting. Oh, I do too. Especially it allows the connection of family members and close friends and everything. I think it's, mm-hmm. I think it goes beyond just the actual hunting portion of it. I think sitting here, me and you talking back and forth, I think we, it'd probably be a good idea to do a, to do a, at least I know I've got a few stories from deer camp, not necessarily the deer hunting, which we're going to talk about a lot today, but just the stupid, silly stuff that happens in deer camp that everybody's got stories about, man. Probably get somebody, I know we've get some people on that. We know have had some really good stories. We are to do that. We just have nothing but a podcast of, of uh, people sending in their stories or something or recording them and putting them on. Yeah. So deer hunting, you all, that's why uh, we are together today to chat about this. And we, it was kind of, I didn't realize this about Tracy. Tracy said he'd only been a few times. I thought you'd been out deer hunting more than that. Oh, no, I, I would definitely label myself as a novice when it comes to deer hunting. I've only harvested two deer. In terms of going, I have probably been, let's see on four deer hunts, but yeah, I've only oh. harvested two, one with a, a bow and then one with a gun last year. Oh, nice. I didn't realize that. Cool. 
our uh, mutual friend, Clark Pelfrey, he went hunting for the first time this weekend and got one. That is fantastic. Yeah. It, I mean, he said, he said, uh, it's been 40 years in the making, but he went and got him one. I like those stories. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Really yeah. good. So that's what we're going to talk about today. You all, and I think this will give us an opportunity to go back and forth on two different perspectives, you know, Tracy being, as he stated, more of a novice on this topic and me, uh, not a professional by any stretch, but I've done a whole lot of deer hunting. So, uh, that'll give a pretty good perspective, I believe. Cause I mean, I think the big thing is, you know, and the first thing I wanted to get into is the why of deer hunting. First off is personally, I think it's just part of preserving our culture as a nation, as hunter gatherers, and just the extension of what it is that we've been doing for literally thousands of thousands of years. I think it's a worthy culture to preserve, quite frankly. Oh, I do as well. Aside from the fact uh, that we just already mentioned about the connection of family members and friends and, and, and beyond that, but there is such a disconnect of where our food comes from mm-hmm. and how it's processed. I think that there are several generations now that have no clue of how that hamburger gets on the table. Right. I wish we had more more hunters out there that were educating their kids as they as they come up. Even if the kids didn't didn't turn into be hunters, they need to understand the food process, the I food agree. web, and and everything that that goes on. Yeah, hunting, killing things is not fun, and I, I've said that for years. And I don't I don't think my opinion will ever change on that. I don't think everybody's intended on being a hunter. Uh, I don't think everybody can enjoy it. I'll, I'll put it that way. But uh, preserving the culture, I think, is critical. And I think, man, there was a, this morning, I got some mad at social media this morning. I was cutting up uh, deer meat this morning, cutting up a deer. One take a picture uh, because I basically used my chamonix from from field all the way to the fork. Field dressing the deer in the field all the way to processing it, hanging it, getting the skin off. I use the same knife for everything now. And uh, I want to take a picture and put that out there for social media. And I thought, man, I will be banned. I will, would. I, that would get shut down for me having a picture of a knife with a pile of deer meat. And I'm talking packaged deer meat. I put it up on my story anyway. We'll see if I get away with it. But the the fact that I had to even consider, hey, should I put this up on social media? That's, that's it's, ridiculous. That's telling. That's telling where it's we are. It's telling, man. Golly. I, and I think it goes back to preserving the culture. I think we've gotten so far away from that. Something that is as popular as Facebook or Instagram, YouTube, whatever, those things, they're not allowable there to use a knife to provide for yourself and process your own meat. That's, that's absurd that that is the dominant media right now. Well, it is. And that's the, that's the aggravating thing or the, or the troubling thing for me is we have one entity, which is Facebook, which is controlling our culture. Mm -hmm. And that shouldn't be, we, as men, women, fathers, Mothers should be controlling our culture for our kids to be raised in, not right. not Facebook. Right. It's not right now. I think that's a big one. I think number two, as far as a why of hunting is just simple conservation. I think I did a podcast just on conservation of hunting. We've talked about ago. it several times. Yeah. I think, I don't think it's any secret that I'm a big fan of, um, hashtag huntervationist hunters being in in concert working hand to hand with fishing game agencies. That's where I'm a little different than most. I think it's critical that we have good fishing game agencies. And I think it's critical that we have hunters out there doing what 
we should be doing to work with them in concert, not against them. I th- that's why it's critical to check in deer. You know, right now here in West in Kentucky, we have possible CWD in Western Kentucky um, because they have found it in deer in Tennessee. And so they opened up uh, like a five or six county area in in Western Kentucky where if you harvest a deer there, they, you've got to go check it in. And there's people saying, I'm not going to check it in. I'm not going to be beholden to the man and whatever. And they just don't understand. If CWD gets a hold of our deer herd here, we won't have a deer herd. And that's hunters working hand in hand with biologists that know how this stuff works. And, you know, it might be that if they turn it in and, and we've got CWD problem down there, we might have to eliminate a whole herd of deer down there to keep it from getting into the millions of deer or million plus deer that we have in Kentucky. Cause it'll, it'll wipe them out. It will. And it's a shame that, uh, it has to happen that way. But I will tell you this, whenever I was growing up, the first time that I went deer hunting, the conservation portion of it never crossed my mind. Mm-mm, me either. It, it, yeah. You know, and, um, only until I got older, actually only until I got involved with nature Alliance school with you and talking about this type of stuff, did I really kind of look into how the betterment of our wildlife becomes if we work in tangent with a uh, wildlife management biologist, uh, in right. controlling such things as, you know, chronic waste disease. Yeah, that's me too, man. When I started doing that work with fishing game, habitat improvement type stuff that I like doing so much of, they opened up my eyes to so much and, and I get a lot of people and, and uh, we got a lot to talk about, so I don't want to belabor the point, but I get a lot of people that say, you know, you don't want to have to give the King his money for fishing when you have a right to hunt game. And, and here's, here's my argument against that. When hunters were unregulated and we did whatever we wanted, we nearly wiped several species out of the state of Kentucky. Right. And it is only because of the diligent work that biologists have done to bring back animals like wild turkey, uh, white-tailed deer, uh, elk into Kentucky, for example. This is just one state. The other states are doing it as well. It's just a, it's just a collaborative agreement. It's, it's between hunters and fishing game. We, we have to work together. It is. Do you remember whenever deer hunting started back here in Kentucky? I don't see my dad used to deer hunt one before I was born, but there were just no deer here. He actually talked about it again this weekend at deer camp where he, he went hunting for the first time. It was like the second or third year that it had been offered when he was real young. And I can't remember what year that was. He hunted literally for, I think he said 12 years in the pioneer weapons area of the Daniel Boone national forest without ever seeing a deer. He shot, he saw one and shot one the last year he was up there and didn't get it. And that was the first deer he had seen hunting. Now that probably is because he didn't know what he was doing because he didn't. I mean, he didn't have anybody teaching his brothers didn't know because they didn't grow up doing it. And his dad didn't hunt at all. So they had to figure these things out on their own. But yeah, man, it's, it's interesting. I cannot remember my dad ever going deer hunting. I know he did, you know, whenever Mm. I was young or before I was born, they definitely went out West and did some elk hunting out there. Oh, really? Did get one? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And elk meat is good meat. Yeah, we had some whenever we traveled out to Yellowstone a few years back. In my, I want to say like in my high school years, mm-hmm. the only person I can remember hunting outside of, you know, people outside of the family was Lanny, my oldest brother. Right. Now, man, he loved deer hunting, uh, especially bow hunting. It was a challenge to him. But I remember him telling me, and I graduated in 86, 
I could remember him talking in 80, like 84 or so, 85 about the deer herd, you know, not being prevalent around, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, I can remember him talking then that the population was growing, how the the individuals around there had to kind of learn to deer hunt, just like you said, because it wasn't passed on and passed on because we just didn't have deer. So, uh, yeah, yeah. For those individuals that don't want to support the, the fishing game in each state, um, I, I wish they would sit down and, and rethink it. Right. Yeah. Man, when the, the first deer I ever killed, I was 13 and, uh, my dad had let me skip school. I never skipped school. And my dad let me skip school because up until that point, you can only kill bucks. And they had a doe only day on a Monday and he let me skip school and I killed a doe on that Monday. Actually, it ended up being a buttonhead buck, but it, it, it ended up, you know, so, I mean, from now, I'm 52 now, 40 years, I can kill pretty much as many deer as I want. If I keep buying the tags to be legal, only one buck, but I can kill as many does as I want. I mean, I usually get about five deer a year. <laughs> That's crazy to think, man. In 40 years, what fishing game and hunters working together have been able to accomplish. It's, it's incredible. We'll be back after a quick break. Hey guys and gals, a quick break in our episode to talk about a game changer in outdoor cooking, the Fire Maple Backpacking and Camping Stove System. Whether you're hiking, fishing, or even prepping for emergencies, this portable pot and jet burner is a must-have in your gear. Best part? It's nearly half the price of a comparable jet boil stove system. Thanks to its leading heat exchange technology, you'll experience reduced boiling times by up to 30% compared to traditional stoves, even in windy conditions. That means more time enjoying the outdoors and less time cooking. Are you ready to upgrade your outdoor cooking game? Click the link in the description now to grab yours. Trust me, your outdoor adventures will never be the same. Yeah, it's it's definitely a positive for everyone. I just, and I wish everyone would get educated about it. And I feel kind of embarrassed even growing up that I didn't consider it. Uh, but it just wasn't something talked about. You know, it's not something that most hunters, and I've had the good fortune of trained a bunch of conservation officers. So that's, uh, I'm a little, I get to hear their side of the story too. But most hunters just dislike game wardens conservation officers they just don't understand the job that they're doing it's it's unfortunate really they play an important role yeah hey i think the next one is the other reason why we should go deer hunting deer bacon (laughs) yeah deer bacon (laughs) yeah somebody asked me the other day how do you fix your deer and i'm like how do you fix your meat i have roast i have hamburger i have pork Uh, sometimes i put it in a crock pot sometimes i put it in a just a skillet Sometimes I do a little bit of everything with it. Sometimes I have some of it processed. I've got little cocktail wieners made out of deer meat. I've got bacon made out of deer meat, salami made out of deer meat. Yeah, man, it's good. It is good. And you, you put me on the deer bacon, what, three or four years ago, maybe you started. Oh yeah. I don't know. It's been longer. We've been eating it. You've, you've had deer bacon yourself for a couple of years now. Yeah. But, no, it was last year. You no, it was last year. Last year last with year. my dough, but you had brought it to Nature Reliance School class before, and we have eaten it, and it was delicious. You even gave me a pack, and I brought home. Yeah, two or three, two or three years ago, and the girls here love it. You yeah. know, oh nice to to sit down and say, "Hey, here's a deer steak 
versus yeah. here's a, you know, some deer bacon. They went to that deer bacon. I mean, and they just love it. And, and mm. we still fix it here. I got four packs less uh, left over from last year. And whenever we fix it, we fix a whole pack and it's, it's gone. Yeah. I understand. <laughs> it's the same around here. My mom is funny. My mom hate, hated deer meat and not a big fan of it. She's always aggravated my dad for going deer hunting every year and she didn't feel like they needed it. And then I had a cousin of ours fix some, basically some deer medallions and cooked them on a bed of applewood bacon and shared some with her. And she's like, you need to go deer hunting again. <laughs> to my dad. I like that stuff. And I was like, after 40 years, she can, we can turn her, we can turn anybody to deer meat. Yeah. So Sam asked me the other day, when are you going deer hunting? Uh-oh. Well, get, get some more bacon. <laughs> and she, um, you know, we took a lot of the dough last year and just ground it up and put it in the freezer. And she's been using mm. it for chilies and, and everything else, kind of mixed with uh, uh, beef and everything. It's, it's, it's fantastic. Just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, I think the big thing about food that people need to know about deer meat is it doesn't have all those additives that we're used to in beef. And I think we're going to get to some of this cooking stuff, but at least it's a good, it's a good hundred percent organic food source. It's one of the reasons I like it to go back to those COs though. I think one of the things that most people need to be aware if you're not, are some of the legal necessities that go along with deer hunting. Uh, as far as deer hunting here in Kentucky, and most states are like this. You usually have to have a hunting license to hunt in different states and then over and above that you'll it'll be necessary for you to get a hunting tag like a deer hunting tag or maybe an elk tag or bear tag or whatever and those give you the individual uh, specific right from a legal standpoint to go hunt uh, landowners are a little bit different landowners can get landowner tags and stuff of that nature and there's also some things called nuisance tags where if you have problematic deer on your property, then you can, and I think this is still available, you can go through fishing game and get nuisance tags sometimes, you know, and just hire a bunch of guys or just, hey, I've got a bunch of, I got too many deer on this property. I need 20 of them taken off and tell some people and they'll come take the deer off your property. I've always gotten the hunting license. I've never been an individual that try to go out and, and uh, around the system, so to speak. Yeah. Or so, you know, all that money goes back into to the preservation of the, of the, of the game. So if you know of anyone that, that that's out there trying to skirt man, sit down, have a talk with them, try to bring them on in. Of course, everything's done online now here in Kentucky. You know, I, I wonder if that's national for the most part, Is um, for the most part that some States still have different binding agents like glue, like strip glue that's on the back of a tag and you put it through a, on a leg and, that's pretty much the standard bear for those of you want to tag a little literal deer. But for the most part, it's just telecheck in now. You call through telephone or I actually get on the website, check mine in now because it's super quick drop down menus. Because yep. well, you, you used to have to go through and you still can. You can call in to check it in. You have to go through that menu. Press one if it's a buck well, more than six inches or whatever it is. I can't remember mm -hmm. now. And it literally might take you 10 minutes, which is not that long anyway. But getting online, I can literally have a deer checked in in two minutes. Yeah. Drop down menus, boom, 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 and done. Yeah, it makes it a lot easier because before you had to remember like the county code and yeah, and all that before yeah. you was gone. So now with the areas that has the chronic waste disease, they have do they have to physically take the deer to check in? Yes, I was trying to read about that a little bit taking, last night. They're taking tissue samples now, mm -hmm. and basically, chronic wasting disease is so problematic. Again, it could wipe out the herd, and so they're taking in and. 
And it's, I mean, I've heard some people, I saw some people talking about on Facebook today that they really miss those days mm-hmm. where you would check it. I mean, and I do, we talked about it at deer camp this weekend. I mean, there's a couple of stories about going to uh, one story about going to a check-in years ago. And, and I think I talked about this in a previous podcast. There's a, there's two strips of meat that lay just behind the rib cage on the inner portion of the abdomen of the deer, right along the spine. Mm-hmm. Some people call that uh, milk meat. Some people call it monkey meat. Some people call it tenderloin and they call what's on the back of the deer back straps. And anyway, these, this, the tenderest part of the deer, cause these muscles get re- rarely used. Okay. So we went into a check-in one time and this woman came out to check my deer in and there I am young kid checking my deer. And she goes, well, honey, I can't believe you left that liver up in that deer. And I'm like, what are you talking about? She said right there, that liver. And she pointed to what my family calls the monkey meat, the most, the, you know, the tenderloin. And I was, and you know, me wanting to listen to the adult. I mean, I looked at my dad and He's just going to let me run with it, see what I was going to do. And, and she said, I, if you want me to, honey, I'll go ahead and take that out of there and throw it away for you. And my uncle couldn't stand it. My uncle was like, you cut that out of there, take that from that boy. I'm going to cut yours out of you kind of stuff. And she was uh, trying to get the good meat. With and here's the thing, man, think about it. How many uh, hunters that didn't know what they were doing, did they fall victim to that? She probably got a pile of tenderloins that way. You know, she did. Oh yeah. We'd be easy to miss though, because you know, it's oh, yeah. inside like that. It'd be easy to miss. Oh man. It's funny. But yeah, man, check-ins, you get the, the check-ins. A lot of times they'd have a Polaroid camera and you take a picture and put it up on the wall and everybody would go into these check-in stations to see what kind of deer were killed in the area. Mm-hmm. And now you don't, you don't, well, I mean, you kind of get that on Facebook now. Facebook I mean, all the time, a, yeah. yeah. There's a, there's a couple of whitetail groups. Um, there's one specifically for Kentucky that I watch and see all the deer and people get to show off their deer, but, but, uh, you know, that's something that's missed by the check-ins. Although I like not having to do that. It's a whole lot easier. Just checking in. Of it. Mm-hmm. Whenever you said Polaroid, that reminds me of something you don't see a whole lot anymore. There's one place over in cave run that still has some of these, uh, pictures, right. You'd go in and get a pop or a candy bar or something. Mm-hmm. They have these Polaroid pictures up on the wall of everyone's buck or the big fish or the, you know, something, whatever it was for that hunting season, they'd have them up on the wall and you just don't see that too much anymore. That's, I think that's something to miss by the check-in. So that's, that's okay. Facebook will take care of it. (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah. So we probably need to talk about some of the things that we uh, utilize to harvest these critters. And I thought we'd talk about a few clothing and weapons and stands and blinds and, and a knife. I think one of the big things as it relates to clothing is that you basically just have to have something that mixes up your pattern a little bit. You don't have to be all Gucci out there with matching camouflage, everything. You don't have to spend thousand dollars on your, you know, your outfit. I went out there this weekend with the same pants that I wear to, to the mall that I wear to the restaurant that I wear to church. Just cheap Wrangler stretch green, OD green pants with muck boots on. I mean, if you watch me on YouTube videos, the same uniform that I'm wearing there and at classes is what I wore deer hunting this weekend. That's what I wore. I mean, I had a, I have a vest that I wear all the time, kind of mm-hmm. has a breakup. I had that on, but I had my hunter orange on, my hunter orange hat. And, you know, I was good to go and seen yeah, plenty that, of deer. That was something I was going to ask you about because I was watching a video just a few days ago talking about the camouflage and 
the guy had the uh, plaid, red, yellow, maybe some green in it. And he said, you know, he's like, hey, this is the best camouflage that you can get. Right. And and I was going to ask you about that. Uh, for those that, that might be new to deer hunting, what does a deer see? Whenever they, well, whenever they I, look out through there, what do they see? Uh, I don't, I, they, they see very clearly. Okay. They, they see clearly, but they don't see color the same way that me and you think of color. They uh, will often see different, like, uh, like if I have a, for example, and this is, I had a, my vest that I usually wore, my hunter orange vest kind of got jacked up last year and got ripped. So i got a new one. So I have this bright, really bright orange hunter orange vest that I wore this year. Well, deer could very likely see that, that brightness, if you will, you know, something that's going to stand out and uh, the, the value change of it, if you will, you know, something that's really bright versus, you know, even if you wear something that is old and it's got a lot of, of uh, cleaning agents that are on it, then it'll make it bright and stand out. And they say there's something about that that deer can see, but as far as colors, they don't see them the same way me and you do. So it won't so, see orange the way me and you see orange, for example. Right. So would you agree with the video I watched? Because his conclusion was that a lot of this camouflage in high dollar clothing is just a marketing ploy to get your money. No doubt about it, in my opinion. And I'm not, I don't know that I, I feel this way about scent blocker just because I've been so close to so many deer and never used something like scent blocker clothing and stuff like that. That was something that, else I was going to ask you about. But there is incredible value in knowing how the wind works and not like, for example, uh, my wife, there's a, there's a particular insulated layer I like to wear when I'm deer hunting. And I wear it at classes all the time too. And Jennifer washed it the week before I went hunting. I, when I got it out, I could smell the detergent on it. And I thought, Ooh, this is not going to be good. This is not going to be good. Um, Cause usually what I'll do is I'll take all my hunting clothes and put them in a bag with some cedar shavings or something and just leave them there all season, or I mean, all off season. And that way they take on the smell of cedars. I like to hunt in a cedar stand. The backdrop to me, which is one of the things about camouflaging that works, the backdrop to me, because I hunt out of a stand, a, a ladder stand, when the deer that I'm hunting come from a certain direction, and when they look up, they're looking into a bunch of cedar trees. And so if I smell like cedar trees, that's not a problem. If I were to keep all my hunting clothes in and something that smelled like cedar. And then I went to a place where there were no cedar trees. The deer would be alarmed by that. Just because it would be a scent. They're not used it, to smelling period. Mm -hmm. It's a foreign smell. Yeah. Uh, somebody on one of our nature reliance school groups was talking about smoking their clothing the other day. And they said native Americans used to do that. I don't know if they know that is true or not, but, but I used to do that all the time when I was bow hunting. It was just have smoke on my clothes and then just let them sit for a few days before I went hunting because that smokes back basically the smell of wood. And so if it's really strong and that smells like a campfire and that's alarming to a deer, but if it's got the smell of wood on it, then it's not so alarming. So do you use scent blockers? Mm -mm, no, yeah, I don't either. No. And the place that I hunt, I set up in a place where I, where the wind typically bows a certain direction. It's hit me in the face. And the place that I know that the deer are coming from, then uh, I'm I'm usually downwind of them, which is which is critical uh, for bow hunting, especially where, where you've got to get close to an animal to shoot it. Uh, I don't shoot my deer even with a rifle over 40, 50 yards tops. Usually, most of the deer I kill now are 20 yards when I shoot them. 
So um, if you want deer that close, then you got to be downwind of them because they if they sent you, then they're going to take off. The uh, podcast I was listening to they they were talking about the scent blockers and it was mixed mixed review on there's four or five of them talking and uh, the gentleman that runs the podcast he was he said no he said i don't use them he said it's by far more important to hunt with the wind know the wind pattern than it is for that scent block the other aspect that they brought up uh, and this may be this may come on down a little bit but I'll throw it out is the uh, height of the stand. If you can get your tree stand up uh, in that 20 foot range, mm. then that throws your scent so far out from you that if the deer's near you, they're not going to smell you. Yeah. The guys that I know that do a lot of serious bow hunting get way, way up in their trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't bow hunted for quite a while, so I don't get overly concerned about it. I mean, I, my deer stands, I think, 15 feet off the ground. And I had, I had three deer underneath, literally underneath of me. Like I couldn't shoot because I was afraid I was going to shoot myself in the foot kind of thing. It, they were straight down underneath of me. Um, they came up behind me from an unexpected direction. So, um, you know, they didn't smell me. They, they literally uh, browsed right underneath of me and then left and never knew I was there. One of the guys I was hunting with this weekend, the deer, and we were talking about this, and I don't know why this has happened. The biggest buck that I've ever killed, this happened to me. The deer that I killed, and this happened to one of my deer hunting buddies this weekend. Deer's getting ready to cross right over the path we walked in on. Hits our path and then gets on it and starts walking right down the path, smelling where we are. And I'm not, and I, at that time, I wasn't using, sometimes I'll put like fox pee scent or uh, deer urine scent on my boots to leave that scent as I'm walking. I've done mm-hmm. that when I was bow hunting a lot. I don't do that anymore, but. But uh, this weekend, this guy that, that I hunt with had a deer getting right across his path, got on his, where he walked into the woods, followed it for about 30 yards and followed it so far or so long and not paying attention that he literally bumped into his, he left his pack sitting on the ground, literally got his antler hung on the strap of his pack and freaked this deer out. <laughs> really? And, and he threw it, threw it off. And then he just took off running. But when I say took off running, took off running about 10, 15 yards and stopped and looked and then just went on browsing. I mean, literally was on his trail. It was a little buck. It was a little immature, like four pointer or something. I mean, he didn't shoot it, but, but, uh, he ended up killing a big 13 point deer. But you would have think that if if the deer smelled something that odd that they would have. I guess that's immaturity. You know, I I would gather that an old doe or an old buck probably wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel pretty confident that an old buck wouldn't, well, an old doe either one, they're just, they're, they're wood smart. They, they know a lot more. I have a lot more experience out there. So, yeah. So are you a, a proponent of, uh, tractants like the deer urine? I have done that. Uh, mm-hmm. sometimes I still do that. Mm-hmm. If like matter of fact, next weekend, I'm probably going to do it because I haven't killed a deer this year. Um, uh, my dad's killed two, So, and he doesn't eat all the meat. So, uh, I'll get those two, but I'll probably get some urine out i'll probably uh get my grunt call and my rattling antlers go with me next weekend to just try to pull one to me Mm -hmm. Uh, i'm in a spot where i've seen plenty of deer and the shots i'm pretty picky like i'm like the older i get the more picky i am and so the shots haven't been the ones that i would like to take i'll I'll try to bring one to me this coming weekend i know lanny at one time he would uh, he would take uh, like a handkerchief and put yeah. uh, uh, some type of deer, deer urine spray on it and then tie that to the bottom of his boot. 
as he walked in. Yep. You just leave a track in. So it works, works well mm-hmm. uh, as a cover scent and, and to draw animals to you. I'll tell you what, man, I watched that one video of that guy getting humped by a deer and attacked. And it, it was the, the buck just got freaked out because he was covered in doe urine. And uh, I, I quit doing that walking in. Uh, I'll use cover scent like a fox urine or something like that on occasion. But I've had deer freak out over that before too, run across that track line coming in and they just absolutely freak out because it's just such a foreign, maybe there's not a lot of foxes there and they never smelt fox urine. I don't know, but uh, I don't know, man. It was one of them things I got scared of getting humped by a deer. <laughs> so I don't, I don't use deer urine walking in anymore. I think it's one of the good aspects about hunting period, anything really is that it, a lot of it's trial and error and figuring out mm-hmm. what's working in the area and what's not, you know, to me, yeah. that's the interesting or a interesting part of it is trying to yeah, play that chess different. game, you know? And it's different for you than it is for me. And, you know, Tracy hunts this way and he hunts on this property and I hunt this way and I hunt on that property. So those things can change. I mean, there's so many variables, just yeah. so many variables. Uh, clothing. How about weapons? You know, it's whatever you can shoot accurately whether that's a bow or a rifle or, you know, like up in Ohio, I think they're required to use uh shotgun, not shotguns, but uh, slug guns up there. So you can't shoot too far up there. And that, I think that's the thing for me, whatever it is going to be like my dad this weekend, everybody says you can't till, kill deer with a two, two, three. He killed a doe with a two, two, three shot her right between the eyes and dropped her like a, a bad habit. Right. I mean, about 15 yards from a stand. So it's about being able to hunt them and being in the right place at the right time, knowing when to be there, how to be there and knowing how to shoot. I mean, he literally put one little dot right between her eyes and she never knew a thing. And so, and that's a little tiny round, man. Two, two, three is a little round for a deer. The doe that I got last year was two, two, three Mm -hmm. shot in the head and, and she never stepped out of her. She just fell forward. I mean, she just, it's, that's uh, I put a video out about something about this last week on YouTube and and I was surprised that I didn't get any haters on it because I advocated for headshots and that's that's the way I've been doing it for a long time and a lot of people say well you know that's dangerous you might shoot them in the jaw yeah you might but if you shoot them in the chest then you might shoot them in the guts you might shoot them in the in the shoulder you might shoot them in the spine and not get, I mean, there's so many things that can go wrong no matter what. So practice your shooting, go out before season, make sure your rifle's on. It didn't get bumped off from last season. Uh, I think not to say that I asked permission, but I think the animal deserves more than to just throw lead at it. I think they deserve to be shot and killed. Uh, that doesn't mean that bow hunting is incorrect. I, I used to bow hunt quite a bit. And the only reason I don't now is because I don't have the time to practice quite frankly, but I think shot placement with a bow is critical too. I mean, do it, do it right. So they don't have to, you don't have to run after them. You don't lose them. You don't, they don't suffer anymore and they have to, and you get on them. As I stated, when this podcast started, I've only killed two. One was with a bow and it was, you know, years ago, I was in my twenties and it was about, it was a doe. It was about 45 yard shot and, <laughs> uh, and hit it. And the arrow well, when it penetrated, the arrow went up and clipped her spine and, and she mm-hmm. literally did not take a step. I mean, she, mm-hmm. it was, she just locked up and fell right over. Mm-hmm. But at that time, Landy and I were both shooting, both shooting competitive 
you know, competition, 3D targets and, and uh, shooting state level and, and even national level. Can't do that now. My shoulder is gone. But and then whenever I started uh, with you, you're the first person they ever mentioned about headshot. Everything was always body shot, body shot. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, yeah, I can do that. So zeroed in, you know, my two, two, three, little savage. And, 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 um, like I said, she never took a step. She just fell right forward. Right. So based up on my limited experience, I'm a proponent of headshots now. I think there's some value in, in putting a lot of effort into being able to shoot long distance. Uh, that's really cool, but I'm a per, and this is a personal opinion. I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of taking long shots. I'm a bigger yeah. fan of being a hunter and a tracker for that matter. And I think everybody knows me as such, but I want to be up in that deer's grill when I shoot it. I, I, it, I don't find a lot of value for me, for me in saying, all right, I shot one at 200 yards. I find value in saying I got one at 20 yards. I got, I had to, I had to adjust where I was standing in my tree stand. Cause I was afraid I was going to shoot my foot kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to be that close to them. Yeah. I think I put the value of, I've got one in the freezer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You hear people all the time, every year talking about a gut yeah. shooting one and, or not being able to track it down. And their right. attitude is, yeah, that'll be coyote food. Don't worry about it. Yeah. That's, I just feel like not, not that I'm in a love relationship with wild animals. I just, I think we are part of a system, the deer, the woods, the humans, all of us interact in a certain way with the environment. And if I want to be a ethical part of that system, then I think quick kills are part of that. And I know that if I miss gut shoot one and the coyotes might get it, and that's part of the system too, but I'm not going out there to kill animals for coyotes. I'm going out there to kill an animal for me. So I'm going and to select to and selected animals as well. Yeah. And that's something, you know, some people are, if it's Brown, it goes down kind of attitude. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that I'm that far, uh, but I'm not too far from that. I'm very picky on the animals that I shoot. Like for example, um, I ha- I've, in front of me this season, I've had a doe and two yearlings. The yearlings are right on top of the mama, right on top of her. And they just don't seem to me, because I've watched them several times at length for, for long periods of time, they don't seem like they know what to do without her. And so I could have, I could have shot her half a dozen times. Mm-hmm. Now, I couldn't have shot one of them, and that's what I've been trying to do. <laughs> because... You know, statistics say that she's had two fawns and she's likely to lose one of them this winter due to the environment, just the harshness of it. So if I can take one of them and put them in my freezer, then that that burden has been eased on her and she can take care of that one a little bit easier and I get deer meat. So, again, that's a little bit maybe put too much thought into it than most do, but that's how I do it. You know, I'm pretty selective. That's another reason I've gone deerless so far (laughs) because I've been a little bit too selective. So right. far, but if you would have taken the mommy deer, uh, and killed her, then you may have been killing three. Yeah. You know, most likely they would have made it, but just in, and that's why I'm saying I'm probably a little bit overcautious like that mm-hmm. more so than I probably need to be. And I'm not saying that I'm a deer biologist, but, but I've noticed that there are times where like a doe, oftentimes a typical behavior that you'll see with a doe and a fawn is that a doe, a doe, if it senses danger, will either snort or stomp its foot. And when that happens, usually the fawn will run off. That's the, you know, that's a learned behavior. They'll run off. And that's 
the way they're trained. Well, this doe did this right in front of me. She was stomping. She, she knew that something wasn't right with me. She knew I was there, but she didn't know where I was. And she's literally 10 yards from me. She just can't figure out where it is. She's stomping, walking around through there. And those deer are just, they keep walking right up to her, which told me they don't really know what they're supposed to be doing here. They don't even know how to run from danger yet. And so I let her run. I let her ride and uh, hope she makes it. But uh, if I see them again, I'm going to bust one of them, one of the little ones. And you were in a stand? Yeah, I was in a stand. Yeah. So have you ever hunted out of a blind? I did one year when Zane first went hunting. I didn't think he could hold still. So I got a blind and set it up and I got got Zane is your, Zane is your son. Yeah. Yeah. For those that are listening, Zane's my son. He's, he's much older and hunts on his own now. But Mm -hmm. when he was little, first time he ever went, he actually had a broken arm. So, uh, he went with me and we've got in a blind so I could teach him some things about deer hunting. And, and then the next few years, well, by law, you're supposed, if, if you have, and I can't remember what the age is under a certain age, you have to be within reach of their firearm. And I can't remember what that age is. And he was still that age. So we set up tree stands right next to each other in the same tree for years. And I could teach him, you know, it's coming this way, watch, it's going to turn, do this. And, and it was pretty cool for him because the things that I was saying that was the deer was going to do, then it would do. And so he got to see, Hey man, dad maybe does know something about this. And, uh, so it was great opportunity to hang out with my son. And then at the same time start off in that blind because he was fidgeting. And I've said this a few times to people and they thought I was a little crazy, but Zane really liked Game Boys and little handheld games and stuff. I let him take that with him to the stand. That way he could, in my mind, he could blend the two things that he's used to and that he likes. You know, he liked being in the woods, but sitting still for a young kid is hard. Sure. So I let him play his, I'd let him play his little Game Boy in, in that blind. And, and then when something was happening, I'd tell him, hey, watch this, we're going to do this or this deer's coming or whatever. That way he could you know, you know, you can't take a kid from a Xbox 360 and put them in the woods and expect them to love it. You just can't. So everything slows down. Mm-hmm. Now, were you in a commercial blind or did you build your blind? No, nah, it was commercial blind. It was a little pop-up thing that you just yeah. kind of threw up in the air and then it became a big blind. <laughs> okay. And for those that are listening, might not be deer hunters. Those blinds are super lightweight now. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this thing, Tracy was probably, I don't know, 16, 18 inches circle that it was one of those things that's a puzzle piece like you basically fold it up and it becomes a circle Mm -hmm. and then you just when you take it out of the bag it just literally pops open and becomes a blind um didn't weigh hardly anything man it was nice and was yours 360 degrees you could fire from Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. had little windows all the way around it but it allows you to take a little hunting chair you could sit down you can move yeah because when you're in that stand if you move too much deer's going to see you up there yeah you for me, hunting in a deer stand, I'm not moving much more than my head or my eyes most of the time. Um, so if I, if I have to, cause I'll have to stand up or sit down on occasion, or maybe if I eat lunch while I'm out there, cause I usually go in before daylight, come out at dark. It's my typical way of doing things. So I eat lunch in the stand, all that stuff. So I, I take my time, uh, moving around at all. Uh, my dad, uh, who's 86 now, be 87 in March. And he's just kind of gotten to the point where he, can't move much hard to walk out in the field and unlevel unlevel ground so he passed his blind on to me probably won't hunt out of it uh, next week but i'm gonna play around with it here on my my land as far as observation and, and just see about it so it might yeah. be something I, something i do hunt out of turkey hunting too man you can use them for turkey hunting they work he used well for it for that. turkey hunting yeah yeah big time because 
he would sit still and then he would, you know, his legs and stuff would cramp on him and stuff. So inside that blind, he could, he could actually stand up and, you know, move mm-hmm. around and, and that's what his, I like about him. Helped his hunting experience quite a bit. Makes it easy to fall asleep too. Take a nap out there. He's done that. He's done that quite a bit. <laughs> I've done that a bunch too. <laughs> oh, I've got a I've got a system where I, I tie myself in yeah. so I don't fall out, and I've got a way that I tie my rifle in and everything. So take a little nap every now and then. <laughs> what about the knives? Uh, you have killed many deer, harvested many deer over the year. One, let's talk about uh, field processing the deer. Mm-hmm. Um, some something with uh, a a pretty not necessarily a lance like or spear type point, but a, a sharper point to do a couple of the fine things you need to do. Like as far as field dressing, you'll want to cut around the anus so you can pull the whole anal track out. Um, and so you don't leave it in the body cavity and you get everything out of it. And so you, you'll probably want something a little bit more of a point on it to do that. Um, but as far as a knife, you know, something that fits your hand good, something that has a five to six inch blade on it, minimum, uh, I've, I've processed, a, or field dressed a couple of deer with a pocket knife that were deer that I've saw got killed. They, they got killed on the road in front of me. And so I would process them right there with the pocket knife I had on at the time. And so it's not like it requires something huge. Uh, for those that know, I designed the Shaman East and I sell it. It doesn't have to be a big honking knife like the Shaman East. It's 12 inches long overall. Although that knife was designed to do a lot of field dressing and harvesting and stuff, but um, it uh, it doesn't have to be like that. It, it's just something I like a thinner blade so you can cut through that rib cage to get all the way up to get all the entrails out the way I feel like you need to get them out all the way up to basically the throat. And so it makes it easier to slice through that rib cage if it's a hardy blade and at the same time thin so it'll slice through there. I don't think the bushcraft blades, you know, your typical bushcraft, Hepart style are good for that sort of stuff. Uh, I don't feel like you need to have what most people call a skin and blade. I, I did it again this morning. I took the shame and ease. I've said it for years, but I use the back of my blade when I'm skinning deer. Mm-hmm. I don't use the sharp side of them. I don't use the belly of the blade at all when I'm skinning deer. I usually pull it off and skin it with the back. The only thing I use the literal sharp side of my blade on skinning this deer out was to cut the hide off of the front shoulders. That was it. The rest of it, I used the back of the blade all the way from the back feet to the neck. And for people that might find it difficult to take a knife and cut through like the pelvic area and the sternum and ribs and all that, uh, are you opposed to using the saws? No, I don't like the, getting those bone fragments into the meat. So I've been, I've been opposed to using those. Um, my dad and one of my uncles for years used small little game hatchets to cut through with like a tomahawk kind of hatchet i think those are great saws are great i I don't care how you do it as long as you get out there and do it and and the meat is taken care of some people me being one of them think that if you get some bone fragments in the meat that it just taints it and it doesn't taste good if you're careful not to get that saw dust into the meat then who cares go for it Uh, or just wash it out real well and you won't have to concern yourself with it I have no trouble doing cutting the pelvic bone nor cutting the rib cage with a knife. It takes, you know, it's taken some practice getting to know how to do it right the way I want it done, but you know, it works for me, but yeah, mm-hmm. use whatever. I did this a couple of years cause I, I tried to fill or fill dress a deer with a, when I first got the LT right Genesis 
and it just not the knock the genesis it's a great survival knife bushcraft knife i love those knives but it just didn't do what i wanted to do i ended up batoning through the pelvis and batoning through the rib cage with that blade that's just a little bit too much for me i'd rather just cut through it and for those that have never field dressed a deer the main aspect is to be able to remove all the inside organs digestive tract stomach without having that touch the meat yeah and the, and the hardest one that i find is the urinary bladder and if you don't know where that is it's one of them things you need to to either watch some really good videos or go out with somebody's the best way to do it is to go out with somebody but i like to show you know there's some of that stuff on youtube for people to watch the best video i've ever seen in my life for that was a, a dvd that was put together by the kentucky department of fish and wildlife they filmed a guy and a and a good friend of mine scott moore is the one who filmed it um emmy award-winning producer film uh, videographer great guy um they had a guy very experienced hunter field dress and harvest a deer all the way to the freezer on on camera oh, and wow. i think it's available on youtube now on fish and wildlife's website absolutely the best step-by-step -step video i've ever seen i'll make a note if we can find it we'll put a link on it oh uh, yeah that'd podcast. be good they were selling that as a dvd back in the day i would say now they're kind of getting away from that so anything additional on shot placement um nope i think we talked about that enough okay so you're sitting there in your tree stand and you go bang what happens after that point uh, for me it's usually start getting my stuff together and go get the deer because i've shot it in the head and it's dead and the beautiful thing about a headshot is that it helps bleed the animal too it'll uh, most of the blood will leave the animal due to a headshot which you want that animal to bleed if you've taken a body shot or if you've shot one with a bow and the animal is down and might still be in the process of dying then you'll want to do something to to quicken that dying process um, you you want to remove their ability to breathe or take another shot to the head or, or something of that nature close up so that that animal doesn't have to suffer any longer than you want to. But most of the time, if you take body shots, if you take an arrow shot and the animal doesn't drop where it stands, then you're going to want to wait and let that animal go lay down because they're going to, they're going to run away because they sense and recognize danger. They're going to get to the part or the spot where they feel safe. And then they're going to stop, lay down, and then they're going to die. If you go immediately down and go after them, you might keep pushing them. And sometimes that's actually good to make them bleed out. But the risk you take is that they run off into another person's property and you can't cross the property line or they just run and they never stop until you just can't find them because you can't track them. The better solution is to sh just wait. And that's one of the hardest things in the world to do. Uh, most people say at least 15 minutes. A lot of people recommend 30 and then go after them. Uh, I'll be honest, I have a really tough time making it out to 30 minutes back when I was not taking headshots. I had a really difficult time doing that. But that's one of the places that I, you know, develop tracking skill too. Not just blood spore, but actually tracks disturbance in the leaf litter. So both of my deer fail. I've been lucky, right? And especially with the bow that it just dropped and I haven't had to track mm -hmm. one yet. What are you looking for whenever you go to track? You shoot one, it runs off. Obviously, you're going to 
watch the direction and mark the direction, especially as right. it goes out of sight. Uh, be right. specific of where it went out of sight. Give it 15, 20 minutes. You climb down out of your stand. Take us from there. I like to go to what we call in tracking last known, where that's usually where I took the shot. The issue with going to the last known is that it's rare that you'll find a lot of blood there unless you've, because you, you think about it, you shoot an animal, unless the bullet goes all the way through, the arrow goes all the way through, there's not a, there's not a passageway for blood to leave the body yet that quick. Sometimes there is, I'm not saying it's never like that. You won't find them until they go out the direction and then you go out tracking them. So what you're looking for is that disturbance in the baseline, whatever the ground looks like, you're just looking for leaves that are overturned, leaves that are creases, you're looking for that blood sign. You're looking for the blood sign is going to be up on the branches, up on the trees. It's going to be on the ground as well. It could be in any number of places. So it's critical to have an idea where the animal traveled and look for sign along that that is more than just blood. If you're interested, look at right now, we're at the beginning of November. Look at my YouTube channel because I made a video on this very topic. Uh, last week on how to track a deer after you've shot it. She, um, track line after the shot, I think is the name of the video. It's a pretty good video. Uh, I'm not actually tracking a deer, but uh, I'm going through the process that I go through. And I think it works really well. But again, going back to what you said, watch until they go out of sight, because that's going to give you an idea. And I think this is where being a woodsman is important too. Deer are typically going to go to where they feel safe when they're not safe. If something alarms them, they're going to go to safety. And so knowing where deer safety areas or sheltering areas, you know, where they hang out during the day is going to be important. So the more you, the more field time you get, the more time you're out walking around and finding where these deer are, then you'll know more when they run and they're going a certain direction. You'll probably have an idea exactly where they're going before you ever get on the track line. And so that'll help minimize how many different places you have to look for that, that sign. Hey, let's myth bust something that I've heard my entire life. Yeah. Whenever you shoot a deer, probability of it running uphill or downhill is that they will take downhill run versus uphill run. I've seen them do both. However, in my very uh, amateur number of times that I've done this, I would say that it's most likely they're going to run downhill, but more than anything, they're running to safety in my mind, watching where the deer go. They always go to safety and that's, that's, and, and think about it. It's wherever the deer, you, uh, more often than not, it's where the deer just came from because they just came that way and there was no danger there. So they'll go back to there. And it's just, the humans are the same way. We go back to the safe zone. Uh, if the, if there's an, an area of sheltering out in front of them, they might just run forward and go into that area because deer, whether they consciously give thought to it, the way I'm describing it, know where these safe areas are. And they go from safe area to safe area. They always know where those safe areas are because they'll go to them every time. We'll link that uh, YouTube channel uh, in the show notes as well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I'm glad you're taking notes. Okay. So every year we hear of a hunter shooting a hunter and there's some some safety aspects that every hunter should have to go through, but I'll throw one out there. I shot my deer at about 45 yards, both of them. I wouldn't have a good chance of mix, mixing that deer up with a hunter at 40 yards versus a 150 yard shot. 
or shooting through debris. Knowing what you shoot, having that good shot, as you've talked about several times, you could have shot a deer or two, but you just didn't have the shot that you wanted. So you let that deer go by. Talk to us a little bit about safety concerns out there. There's no excuse for that, for hunting and shooting another person. Absolutely no excuse for it. You need to have 100% confirmation that the thing that you're shooting at is, is what you're shooting at. Confirm that it's a deer. It's not just movement. And we all know people have heard stories of people just shooting movement or shooting something that moved in the brush. And that's just unacceptable. Unacceptable. There, and I will not back down from that. I don't care who you are. There's absolutely no excuse to not have 100% confirmation that what you're shooting is an actual deer. If it's questionable in the slightest, then don't take the shot. Because here's the thing, guys. There ain't no amount of ego. There's no amount of, it doesn't matter what deer you kill. Somebody's going to kill one bigger. It don't matter. Somebody's going to get one bigger and better and better than the one that you just killed. So there's no use in taking a shot just because you think, hey, man, that's the deer that I want. And if you're hungry and you need an animal, contact hunters for the hungry. You can get out. There's all kinds of guys out there that hunt because they want to continue the culture the history of hunting but they don't really want the meat then there's plenty of meat to be had you know i was sick a few weeks ago and so it didn't look like i was going to get to go deer hunting one of my relatives uh, killed a deer and gave me the tenderloins you know there's i mean there's always somebody you can get deer meat from it's not worth it and a lot of people well i won't say a lot but there's several hunters out there that only hunt for uh, the horns Mm -hmm. the antlers to be able to put them up on the wall Yeah. You know, I used to, I'm opposed to that for me personally. And I used to think that that was a a character shortage. Uh, I've kind of changed my mind on that. I mean, there's people that want to hunt for horns and, and I think they play a valuable part in the, in the management of the resource. And if that's what you're going for, just as long as you don't kill the deer and just leave the meat for nothing. If you're donating it to hunters for the hungry, or you find somebody that can use it, then by golly, go hunt your horns. I'm all about it. Because we, we need more hunters. Yeah. Um, and I think, quite frankly, to be, you know, if I'm as honest as possible, I think that was a character flaw in me that, that I used to look at people, look down on people like that. And that's, you know, I'm just admitting my wrong there. That uh, if you're a horn hunter, then by golly, hunt them horns. Just please but, <laughs> don't let yeah, the meat keep, sit there. They, don't, don't waste, waste that meat. meat. Absolutely. Right. So we talked about field dressing. Anything else you want to throw in there about field dressing? Mm-mm. No, I think that's pretty good. Well. Uh, one thing, uh, well, I think it's next on our list as I'm looking at our list right now, taking that deer out. Um, a lot of people talk about problematic taste in wild game, what's called the gamey taste. And we'll talk about that in a minute too. But the best, the, the thing you need to realize when you're dragging that deer out, you're dragging a big grocery bag full of steaks and roast and hamburger. Looking and, at it. and so you know, you wouldn't go to Kroger's and then fill up your grocery bags full of meat and just drag it through the parking lot. I mean, we have to drag these deer out, but if you drag it out, drop it on a bunch of rocks, throw it up into the back of the truck. And when you drop it out of the, you know, where you've hung it to, to age, you just drop it down into the, into the bed of the truck or whatever, then you're causing that meat to have problem. You wouldn't do that with a steak from Kroger. So don't do it with a steak that you took from the woods. So I'm real, I'm, I'm pretty cautious as I walk out dragging my deer and not to take care of it as I drag it out. 
And you try to get a, uh, maybe a four wheeler side by side in as close as you can. Yeah. Where I hunt at, uh, because I've gotten older and I pretty much hunt on my own. Uh, I hunt in a spot that I just drag my deer to the road downhill, which makes it easy. I don't have to drag any deer uphill anymore. And that's one of the reasons I like where I hunt. If, if like where other people in my hunting crew hunt, yeah, we take the four wheelers right to the deer because they're going to have to drag them up a mountainside. And that's just, you know, that's not fun. (laughs) So back when I was a younger man, I used to do quite a bit of it, but I'm not up for that anymore. Then you get the deer back to your uh, camp or homestead and you have to hang it. Yeah. Uh, and I should have stayed this earlier. You said if there's anything else, but there is, I do everything I can to get any blood that's on the meat out and off the deer in the field. So it's not drying on the meat. Uh, uh, if, if I'm hunting near Creek, then I'll, I have a collapsible, uh, water bucket that I go get water and I'll splash it into the body cavity. If I'm going to hunt all day and I kill a deer early in the morning, I'll hang it up in a tree out there in the woods. So it gets plenty of air around it. So it cools. Then, uh, when we take them out, we like to hang our deer and we like to hang them and wash them out. Literally, we take a water hose and wash them out real good. So when they're hanging, the water also helps to cool the inside of the body cavity. If it's warm temperature, if it's cold, like it was this past weekend for us, where it's, you know, low thirties, then it's not a problem. And one thing that we do, it's a little bit different than most. And there's a lot of debate on this is how long you let that deer hang. Mm -hmm. We usually kill a deer on Saturday, Sunday, and then we cut it up and put it in the freezer on Monday. A lot of people say you should let them hang and age a little bit more. Uh, I've done a little bit of reading on this actually this year um, because I was writing some things. And uh, most of that aging has to do with the fat content in the meat and letting that fat age more so than the meat itself. And so because deer are so lean, they don't have much fat in them. And so there's not really a need for them to hang real extended periods of time. But most of the guys that I know that let deer hang, they'll let them hang for seven days before they cut them up. Quite frankly, I have to be honest, I think that adds some of that gaminess to it. I don't think that that's necessary. But there's a lot of people that are smarter than me that feel like it's an absolute necessity. And so they'll they'll let them hang. Uh, They'll either rent time in a cooler from somebody or you know they take them to a game processor who processes them and lets them hang for those of the listeners that are not deer hunters why do you field dress one why can't you just uh throw it on the back of four-wheeler and and take it back to camp great question you don't want that you don't want the entrails to be in there particularly the bile and the gut and the stomach to be inside that body cavity you want to get it out as asap and you want it you want to bleed that animal and get as much of that blood out as you can you don't want a lot of that blood sitting inside the, the body. So uh, I actually don't know the scientific reasoning for that, why that's important. I just, and, and maybe that's something I need to know and study. Yeah, it is something I need to study because I don't know why I do that, but I feel pretty confident that's a necessary function, at least the blood. Now I do understand you don't want the stomach contents and the entrails to have, you know, feces in them that could taint what's inside there because basically everything immediately starts to rot that's that's aging that's just another way of saying aging it begins to rot you don't want that inside the body cavity i've watched videos where they talk about trying to cool the meat down you know field dress it like you said throw water up in there and kind of cool that cool the body temperature down the carcass down so Mm -hmm. that and they use the word bacteria so that bacteria Mm -hmm. doesn't start growing yeah now warmer tips that's absolutely necessary necessary in the colder temps i don't think that's as big a deal like we've had this weekend mm-hmm. but if we go in early season like bow season or 
uh, even modern or even muzzleloading season, we'll oftentimes put bags of ice in the body cavity and then wrap it up. So that helps cool the inside of the body cavity. And then you still let it hang though, even in the warmer temp? Let it hang. If, if, it's, if it's warm enough where there's flies are out, we'll put something over it so that we don't get flies laying eggs on the meat itself. Mm -hmm. um, like you can get these bags that are made for that purpose, or you can just put a garbage bag over them so that you can mm -hmm. keep the flies off. Uh, let's see. Uh, you've got it hanging up. You have um, taken the hide and now you're ready to process the meat. For those that are new, I think one of the easiest things to do is find a paid processor. I don't know what they run for these days, but find somebody that's what they, they make extra money. A lot of times the guys that are doing processing are butchers at different grocery stores and they, you know, they, they really know what they're doing. And so they'll make some extra money during deer season, cutting up deer. And then you've got other people that are just, Hey, they just, they like doing it. They like processing game and you can get them done and, and they'll take every, care of everything for you and they'll do whatever you want. Some processors can take game all the way to, um, salami and bacon and stuff like we were talking about before and others just cut up the the main roast and tenderloins and stuff of that nature and you can get somebody to do all that for you or you can do it yourself which is what i do i know whenever we processed the dough last year you had your grinder up and we uh, ground a lot of the meat I can't remember now what we put it in maybe one pound bags put it in the Probably. freezer and that and then whenever my wife cooked anything she needed meat she would just be able to go out and grab a pound of deer meat, let it thaw and use it just like hamburger or anything else. Yeah. I mean, it, cause it is, it's just ground up meat. Um, and it's lean and it's not nearly have the contaminants in it that a beef would from the grocery store. Yeah. Um, so it's, I think it's a superior meat choice, quite frankly. And so we have some little cocktail wieners made and we've talked about the bacon a few times already. Yeah. I get yeah. somebody to do that because I don't feel good enough to do that. I don't have all the equipment to make all that work real well. So I get somebody to do that for me, but, uh, the other stuff, the tenderloins and all, and, and I'll give you a perfect example. Me and my dad cut up this deer this morning and me and my dad working together on one deer, he killed a doe. It literally took us an hour and 15 minutes. And we had that deer from hanging in the barn to in the freezer. It didn't take that long at all. Now he and I've done a bunch and he knows what he's doing and I know what I'm doing and he has his job and I have my job. Right. And so we can make quick work of a deer really, really quick. And that's still me and him talking and stopping because our hands were so cold. We couldn't use them anymore and telling stories and stuff like that. And we still had a good time. And, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's not like it's a real lengthy process. Uh, let's see. What about uh, last couple items? Uh, what about busting some myths? I think the one that I put that in notes, Tracy, because I, I think the big thing, and, and it sounds like this is what you all found out last year. And I love hearing that that your wife and the girls love, love the deer meat is uh, a lot of people say it's got a gamey taste and they are right to an extent, but here's my viewpoint on it. And if you, if you can develop this viewpoint, I think it helps. The gamey taste is taste. The stuff that we're used to doesn't really have a lot of taste. What you're tasting in deer meat is the fact that that thing's been eating acorns. I mean, it's not eating a bunch of, of uh, steroid filled corn or, you know, bad corn or anything of that nature like beef do for for all that matter or even grain fed beef or uh, grass-fed beef you're looking at a deer that's been eating organic material from the moment it was born and so you've got 100 organic food source and that gamey taste is taste you don't have to soak it in anything to give it any 
you know, soaking in milk, soaking in beer. I've heard all these different strategies Pepsi. to get that Pepsi to get that gamey taste out. You don't have to do that. Quite frankly, once you get used to eating deer meat, you will prefer it in my estimation because it actually tastes better. And secondly, it's just, it's better for you. Now that doesn't mean that I don't sometimes take a tenderloin and wrap it up in bacon and put some honey on it or something like that. I do that too, to offer some different flavors, mm -hmm. but yeah, I think it's a superior meat choice. Which is going to bring me to the, our last topic, recipe ideas. I was going to ask you, do you do a lot of seasoning on your, uh, say like you grill a tenderloin? Do you put a lot of seasoning on it? Butter and honey. For years I've used slap your mama. I really like that. It's a spice sprinkle spice. I was down at an event recently where I picked up some red-eyed hog sprinkle spice. I put that on some deer meat this past week and loved it. Oh man, it was really good. Red-eyed hog. We'll have links for that in there too. But uh, more often than not, because it is lean, it will taste dry compared to beef or pork. And so oftentimes we'll add a little flavor and a little bit of fat content to it by wrapping it or cooking it with bacon. That is one thing that we do just to if that's all you're ever eating, it's not a big deal, but we eat beef too. And so uh, having a little bacon on it just adds a little flavor to it as well. As far as different ideas for how to eat it, how do you eat beef? That's how I eat deer meat. We put it in spaghetti. We put it in casseroles. We cook steaks. We fry it up in a skillet. We put it in the Instapot, cook it up. That's one of my favorite ways uh, most recently is, I mean, we've done this at classes. How many times have we done this at classes, Tracy? where I'll bring a roast or some tenderloin or something, put it in an Instapot. When we have a class where we got electricity, throw in some carrots and potatoes, put it in there about lunch, go teach survival or land nav or tracking, come back four or five hours later, we got a fantastic dinner. That works really well. Instapot helps t tenderize things a little bit better and, you know, some beef broth or something thrown in there for a little mm -hmm. liquid and it's good to go. You know, whenever I grill a steak, I put seasoning on it. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's one yep. of the things I like to do whenever I grill is to play with the different seasoning. To me, there's no difference in cooking that steak, a beef steak versus a, a deer steak. You know, play with your seasoning. You'll, you'll figure something out that, that tastes yep. good to you. Don't be afraid to try it. Yeah. I think people, people try that deer meat for the first time and it's dry compared to what they're used to. And it doesn't have the same flavor as beef and they look at it and it looks like beef, but it doesn't taste like beef. And they go, oh, that's terrible. And I think that was my mother for 40 years. I mean, she just didn't eat it. She didn't want it. And now she had some fixed up with a little applewood bacon. And she's like, you need to go kill more deer <laughs> to my dad, you know. And I mean, my dad pretty much given up on deer hunting because they just weren't eating it at the house. So now he's invigorated again, <laughs> which is good. Well, good good for him. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just uh, give it a try. If it doesn't turn out too well the first time, then get some more. And then uh, that's one of the things we've been doing at Nature Line School. Tracy and I have been fixing deer meat for people for years now and uh, trying to get more hunters out there, trick them, fix them some good food. And then a yeah. little Kentucky kernel seasoning on some of that steak, fry that up, son. Oh, no. I know Lanny played around with different recipes, different seasonings, different ways of cooking it for years. I mean, just every year he'd come up with something different to try. And he got to where he could absolutely fix steak and, you know, deer Lanny's steak. Lanny's a man. He well, was a hunter could, and a, you could love it. and a gentleman. He was a good old soul, but he was a tinkerer, man. He even if something worked, he was tinkering with it, you know. And with Increasing that the, yeah, I mean, he would cook a, a you know a little deer steak or deer meat, and we'd go over and eat it, and it'd be great. But next year, he would come up with something different, you know. Yeah. So I think that's the the fun part of it, trying to figure it all out. 
Well, we're probably need to close this thing out. We're over okay. an hour year, um, over an hour. Uh, anything else you want to throw out there? No, man, I'm, I'm glad that we got a chance to talk about it. I'm glad that you guys started back hunting too, man. That was fun. Yeah. You getting that deer last year. It was, it was, uh, kind of, um, emotional for me because it was Lanny's gun that I took the deer with and uh, we lost him last year. So good too, man. It is, man. I, I like that uh, part of it. If anybody has any questions, can they send you a question at podcast at nature Alliance? Yeah. Podcast at nature Alliance.org. So we'll get those and we'll pass those on. Yeah. So don't, don't, uh, I'd don't like hesitate. to do one of those. We keep talking about it, man. We need I to, know. I know. If, if you all would send us questions, listen up listeners. Are you listening? Send us questions. We'll do a podcast just for your questions. Maybe we need to have to set a time frame on that, Tracy. Hey, everybody send us questions this week and then we'll do a podcast on it. Yeah, Maybe we it's can a holiday that. podcast. Yeah, that, that'll work. Well, good deal. I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your, uh, you don't call it expertise, but I call it uh, your expertise in deer hunting because you've taken so many deer and, and done so many things uh, in the realm of hunting. Uh, and you, you're, very, um, you're very quick to pass it on. And, and I think that's what we need to do. Well, like me and you always say, my way is not the way of doing things. So if anybody's listening or something you disagree with and figure it out on your own and do it your way, just get yeah. out there and do it. I don't care. I just <laughs> want to see you out in the field with me. And kudos to Clark Pelfrey for taking his first. Yeah. Game. I know he listens to the podcast. So congrats, Clark. That's good stuff. Yeah. He needs to, he needs to tell us that story whenever he gets to the next class. So yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll slide out and let you close this out. And how about that? Yeah, sounds good. Hey, everybody, thanks for listening in. We really appreciate you being a listener of the Nature Reliance Media Podcast. We're ever improving. So, again, podcast at naturereliance.org gets to us, and uh, we'll do everything we can to improve. Hey, we're doing it for you, so you let us know. Help us out if you don't care. Uh, give us a like. Uh, send this podcast on to somebody that you know that might like the material in it. Give us a five-star review when and where you can because we greatly appreciate it, whether it's on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever. We greatly appreciate you listeners. So as always, come on, join in. Let's learn together. And that wraps up another fantastic episode of the Nature Reliance Podcast. I hope today's journey has inspired you to explore and connect with the natural world in new and exciting ways. Before I say goodbye, remember to check out the Nature Reliance School online membership. If today's episode sparked your interest in wilderness skills and outdoor adventures, this online community is the perfect place for you to start or continue your journey. You can currently sign up for a year for only $99 and get two months for free. Click the link below to discover a world of expert-led courses, engaging content, and a vibrant community eager to share their knowledge and experiences. Whether you're starting your outdoor journey or looking to deepen your existing skills, the Nature Reliance School online membership is here to guide you. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe for more adventures and share this podcast with your fellow nature enthusiasts. Until next time, come on, join in. Let's learn together.